the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, our podcast every week about work. I, I still wonder if every week you're going to talk about what episode number it is. <laughs> I think I, I have lost count now. Do you want to know? Oh, I like that you're bringing this information. I don't always know, but today I have some extra responsibilities here at the podcast. And one of the things that I know is that we are on season two, episode 13. I will say that your extra responsibilities are because... Yasik is not with us today. We do not have an audio engineer. Well, so, I well, mean, <laughs> well, you are doing double duty as audio engineer and as um, a podcaster. I feel like we should always be challenging ourselves. We should never be afraid of what we cannot take on. He is afraid for us. That's a different story. <laughs> he, I mean, if this conversation makes it into the podcast, uh, it will be so he can say, I, I never had any doubt. But uh, yes, he is worried. Anyway, so just FYI, we are going rogue today. We are we're on our own. Um, we are with two dogs. You hear any pitter-patter, that's them, as usual. It is a little bit like that, right? It is a little bit like being left home alone. Oh, totally. I'm like super excited about this. This is going to be our most efficient podcast, our most amazing podcast ever. But then <laughs> I said, Yasik is away. What are you going to order? And you have some dinner plans already, some some food you already had. What is the thing that you get when he's not here? That like, what's the one thing that he doesn't like that you wish? Um, he, we, we generally have the same like food tastes, but if like if I was ordering something, I have my food taken care of tonight. But if I was ordering something that he's uh, on, it would be The Real Jerk, which is a Caribbean food place uh, close to my place. Um, and I would be ordering like an oxtail dinner and some spicy shrimp. And the reason he likes the flavors, but he's an amateur. He can't handle the spice. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. And I am on the opposite side of the spectrum where I can handle lots and lots and lots of spice. Like I once did like a scotch bonnet on television. No problem. I mean, that's, that's good. That's not bad at all. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's what I would do so that I could like maximize the spicy content. Cause when I cook, for example, I would make all the food way spicier than oh, he can yeah. handle, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I have to modify for his gentle palate. And then what? Add sriracha? Sriracha or pepperoncini. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a nice kick, 
for pepperoncini is mostly for flavor though. Like even the pepperoncini for me is like barely heat. No, exactly. It's like a it's a a soupçon something. But I I generally do like I'll add heat to anything if I can. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about my own answer, not that you asked. Um <laughs> but it's about frequency at our house. I would eat Mexican food weekly given the opportunity. Oh my god, yes. Right? Like like some nice carne asada tacos or whatnot. Yes. Whereas given his druthers, uh, my husband would want to order Indian food. We live really close to little India. And every time we're kind of at a loss, he's like, how about Indian? I'm like, we just had it last year. It's not that I don't like it. It's yeah. the frequency. I only need to tap in about once a year and he would tap in much more frequently. I, I'd have to agree with you. I, I'm not big on Indian food either. Um, however, I would say that the Mexican thing I wouldn't be able to do without Yasik because he is 100% down with Mexican. Oh, so good. So good. Actually, now I'm rethinking what I'm planning for dinner tonight, but I can't. I'm going to be good. I'm going to eat what's in the fridge so I can finish off what's in the fridge. Do you ever do that? Like you want something, but you have to like finish off whatever's in the fridge and you're like, ah, fuck. Well, yeah, kind of. You mean because it's going to go bad? It's going to go bad and it's guilt. Like what I'm eating tonight was carefully and lovingly made for me by my mother. So there's guilt in that. Like if I just order a pizza, they're not lovingly carefully. <laughs> they're not lovingly preparing the pizza for me. You know what I mean? No, it's true. So yeah, you you do have like love obligation there. But it's also kind of a delight. Like when I think I've been too indulgent with like, you know, bocconcini balls, for example. Yep. Uh, and I'll be like, oh, I couldn't possibly have more. And then I see they're going to expire soon. I'm like, it is my duty to consume <laughs> these. I ha- it would be a waste. Otherwise, I better eat them all. That is a that is an exciting day when that happens. So I'm really hungry. Yeah. This we, is a poor gotta, way to start the podcast. Let's do this right now. Okay. Shall we? We had, I mean, we pitched a lot of stories back and forth and our editing process was we had to be quite mercenary, but we did get a lot of emails and tweets about Almost the, everything on the list. Almost everything on the list. I would say probably one of the hottest ones and maybe the hottest celebrity read um, judging from where I look at on Twitter, and a lot of people were talking about it, was the GQ profile on Brendan Fraser with the title, Whatever Happened to Brendan Fraser by Zach Barron. So, you know, it's so funny because you sent this to me and said, should we do this, paraphrasing, and I kind of read it and went, yes, no, no, Yes. What? No. You're, you know, you wrote back, holy shit. Well, yeah, but back. I, but I, I reading through the article, I had mixed feelings about it. First, before I read it, because, and you're going to love this, this, is a chance for me to say I was right, because Brendan Fraser showed up in The Affair last year, which I really enjoyed, but I sort of thought, well, that's where he was. He was in The Affair. The article goes into why that was sort of a moment, but it's one of those things where you kind of don't realize he's been gone. And I think one of the reasons this article is a big deal is because you didn't really know that you cared until you read it. True? Yeah. I, you're totally right. And a lot of the headlines that are coming out of this article have to do with his accusation that the former head of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association sexually harassed him at an event a few years ago, it it definitely traumatized him. It really, and at the time, he was dealing with career insecurities as well. 
And so it exacerbated his low confidence. Um, and that is definitely, I mean, of course, in this Me Too and Time's Up movement and moment, um, it merited all those headlines. But there is a lot of work and work talk in this article, especially related to both celebrity and civilian. So the article kind of lays out where Brendan Fraser was before he was gone uh, and what that looked like. One of the things that was so interesting about it is that even though I knew that Brendan Fraser had had like a certain area of work, I had never seen how clearly all his roles were related. They're really specific about talking about how almost every role that Brendan Fraser played from school ties on up yeah. was kind of a wide-eyed, yeah. like, not galoot, not like a galump, but like a wide-eyed kind of giant innocent. Like, oh, what's this? Like but, Marmaduke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, but, but I guess like with with St. Bernard eyes to extend that metaphor. Wait, is Marmaduke a, a Great Dane, I guess? Like, that he was fragile despite being a large imposing presence, that every role is about him being like, I don't understand this strange world yes. uh, of unfrozen caveman lawyer. Right, like a fish out of water and innocence to him, but lovable, and you were always on his side. Right, like everything from Encino Man to... Uh, that one where he was back from the 50s to school ties again. I mean, we could have a whole podcast segment just on school ties, which remains underrated. Yeah. And that class that came out of there. Well, yeah, absolutely. But that was sort of Brendan Fraser's role. And then the whole mummy thing, which mm -hmm. I should probably confess now, I have not seen a mummy film. I... Here's here's what I associate with the Mummy movie, and this is the original of the first one that made him this huge blockbuster star, is Rachel Weisz. Oh, yeah. Rachel yeah. Weisz is the Mummy in a way which is weird. Yeah. Like, my attachment to the Mummy, would it would be, wow, that was the moment where I was like, who is this actress? I love her. But sure, before this article, when I looked back on the Mummy, is Brandon Fraser the one who jumps out? No, it would be Rachel Weisz and then the guy who ended up in Titanic. Billy Zane? Right. <laughs> but I do also think that, to your point, the revelations of this article, another one for me would be how short our fame and celebrity memories can be because I didn't take the time to appreciate that Brendan Fraser was a blockbuster movie star. You can't get away from a retrospective of his career without appreciating the fact that he made huge movies, movies that made huge money, and how very quickly that can evaporate. Well, the thing, that's what's so interesting about this article is that he seems, and like GQ presented me with the metaphor, I'm not coming up with it, but he seems like he's from a simpler time. There are no conversations about things Brendan Fraser was trying to produce. There are no conversations about his other business interests. He wasn't, he never mentions in the entire article about sort of a career rise and fall and the fragility and whatever they're in. He never mentions an agent. 
a manager. Mm -hmm. There's no sense of anybody around him. And it made me think of kind of a much older movie star, not in age, but like in a different era. Yeah. That he just sort of seems, it's going to sound like the wrong word, to have been simply going through the motions of being an actor and thought that he was doing kind of all the right things Mm -hmm. uh, and doing all the right work. And so it's really interesting when you talk about how short our fame cycle is, it's also how I guess how much you have to adapt if you want to survive, right? What's the animal that like a shark, a shark always keeps moving or it will die. Right. And this seems as though this was a case of, of stopping moving, maybe, which is not to blame him, right? No, no. And, and he, essentially he followed the path that was prescribed to movie stars of a time, right? You get that blockbuster, you tap in, you, what is that expression that you always use? Ride the horse in the direction it's going. Yeah. And so this is the role. These are the roles. This is the persona. And back in, as you would say, a simpler time, that was the formula for success. And he just happened to, um, he just happened to achieve that success at a time when Hollywood was evolving in this vortex of media and social media and blurring the lines between who gets famous and who's already famous, celebrity and civilian, reality TV, the rise of Hilton and Kardashian and Nicole Richie. He was caught up in that really weird time when there was a transition that we look back and see now. But when you're in that hurricane, when you're in the tornado, it's hard to predict. It's hard to forecast. Well, and there was no need to to think so on some level, right? Like um, Brendan Fraser talks in this article about how uh, not only was he going along with his multi-franchises and whatnot, but he was physically working himself to the bone without complaining. He doesn't in any way blame anybody else. He never points an accusatory finger in any direction, but he talks about how he was wearing himself down and how he was basically, I think at one point he says he was held together with tape and mm-hmm. like physiotherapy. Like he called it an exoskeleton that he had to build for himself on a set where ice packs were sewn in or attached to pants and tucked in to certain places for him to even be in a scene as protection Which or s- healing. Uh, it's Yeah, it's, it's outrageous. It sounds like an athlete though. It sounds like an athlete who has sort of a not a lifespan, but a time span they just need to get through as opposed to uh, an actor with huge box office who could probably say, hey, quit it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to like take some time off. No, we're not going to start that next film until three months from now or whatever. Uh, That is, and that's where a lot of the heart of the work talk is here because again, I always say this once or twice in our podcast, maybe more times than that. Um, The real world application of that is how many times have we just been like, okay, I'm just going to say yes and do it. A lot of people out there listening who aren't celebrities, who aren't actors, who work in regular quotes in quotation jobs are constantly doing their version of the exoskeleton and patting themselves and, and, you know, really walking around hanging by a thread in order to get the work done. Well, yeah, absolutely. And as you point out, like that's a requirement for a whole lot of 
people in the real world, right? But that was an old school philosophy too. When you talk about a simpler time, you just worked through whatever you had to work through to make sure that you were a loyal and reliable employee. Or even a loyal or employable uh, studio actor, right? It's of another time. But I keep kind of bumping up against, I keep thinking of Judy Garland, right? Who was worked and did work and had success after success. And then of course was trying her best to take care of herself in the background and couldn't. But then I think Brendan Fraser was not of that time. Like his contemporaries, he's 51. His contemporaries are, uh, you know, probably like- Brad a, Pitt? Yeah, Mark yeah. Ruffalo. Mm-hmm. A, like, you know, uh, Robert Downey. Like people who have emerged as forces yeah. in their own right. And the thing I keep thinking about and what I thought you were going to say when you said, you know, we talk about this or we have this in common with him, Brendan Fraser is Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is actually American-born to Canadian parents. Uh, and so if you're not listening in Canada, uh, there are some stereotypes ahead. But Canadians are known sometimes for being easy to work with, wanting to get along. Accommodating. Accommodating is a great way of putting it. Like not wanting to rock the boat. Mm-hmm or being surprisingly pleasant. Sometimes people say, you Canadians are so nice. And they say it almost with incredulity. Yeah. Like there's a deficiency here. Yeah. And all of these things that Brendan Fraser is not a a writer or director that we know, and that he maybe has a Canadian influence and that he had all these physical challenges, uh, such that he needed an exoskeleton, uh, kind of were combining to to get him to this place, right? Like we talk about, oh, how hard fame can be. But I feel like sometimes that's a euphemism and people don't really understand what it means. And it's not always about, oh, all the money went to drugs and booze and whatever. Sometimes it's just like, it's a lot of pressure and you turn inward. Yeah. I also think too that in this case, when we're talking about someone who's accommodating and really just wants to please, and yes, 100%, it is stereotypically Canadian. It is part of a larger conversation that goes beyond Canada right now in the workplace about not just saying yes. Um, There are a lot of articles that are coming out right now about how millennials approach job interviews, um, how we used to approach job interviews for those of us, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I'm aging myself. But, you know, it used to be in a job interview, what can I bring to the company? And more and more these days, a job interview, and it should be this, and I try and remind myself of it too whenever I'm in a negotiation or I'm in a meeting, is here's what I want to get out of this company and here's what this company will be able to get out from me. Like the interview should be both ways. It shouldn't be the company who's looking to hire sitting across from somebody who's desperate for a job. And I understand sometimes it is that that in certain circumstances, but in the most ideal sense, you're coming to the table as equals. So the company is like, hey, this is what we're looking for. Can you be that person? And the person sitting across the table from the company is, uh, this is what I'm looking for. Can you be that company? 
And the old school Canadian accommodating, but more than just Canadian way, all of us, especially women, used to approach employment opportunities is, can I be what they want me to be? And Brendan Fraser obviously paid for it physically and emotionally with that kind of mindset. But we are seeing more and more a lot of top level best practice businesses um, or business articles and theoretical uh, processes that are being, you know, uh, put forward. If you read the Harvard Business Review regularly, they're talking about how leading companies, especially in tech and Google and Facebook, are you hear about workplaces that have a yoga studio and workplaces that have the best cafeteria. And they're trying to, and sometimes people might say like, I don't need the fucking cafeteria, just give me better benefits or my hours or whatnot. But this has become a conversation that wasn't a conversation, let's say 20 years ago, but what the company had to do to make sure employees were happy and felt safe and guarded. And of course, in the last six months, that has exploded into the, me, into the Me Too conversation and how companies should be a safe place, a protective place, so that all kinds of harassment and employee satisfaction can be satisfied and avoided, avoided and satisfied. Okay, but here's what I love about that. So the reason that's being assigned to millennials, millennials are saying, why, mm-hmm. you know, what can you do for me, company? How will yeah. you fit me? But the reason they're allowed to say that is because, of course, we're in a huge economic upswing, right? The younger millennials happen to be coming into the work world or, you know, progressing to their second jobs or whatever at a time when there is an enormity of job choice and they are in demand. What I love about what you just said is, you know, that was not the case, say, 10 years ago when there was a huge economic downturn. Not coincidentally, perhaps, Brendan Fraser's breakout as an actor happened in the very early 90s when there was a massive recession going on. When you were incredibly lucky to have a job, let alone to have a job as a leading man in movies. He he didn't really, with the exception of, well, no, with almost no exception. Encino Man was his first leading role and it was like his second job. School Ties had a great supporting cast who he still follow to this day, but he was the leading role. Like to have that kind of economic security in a time of of real uncertainty, of course you wouldn't rock the boat. Add the economic insecurity to the Canadianness to what seems like a generally reticent nature, and there you are. Like it's kind of a perfect storm to find somebody who really, according to this article, appears to have blamed himself for a lot of his places where he felt weak. Well, to add another layer to that, you talk about economic realities and how that affects your attitude in the workplace. There is another economic reality where millennials in many major cities are not able to afford homes. Um, you know, and to a certain extent, it is a previous generation or a previous, previous generation that has made it so that home prices and real estate prices are going up. I'm not here to talk about the reasons, the economic reasons, the social reasons, the political reasons why that is the case. But you will hear then from millennials, and I've, I've, I work with a lot of them, I've read a lot of pieces written by millennials in what their attitude is. And 
a lot of them, some of them at least, um, feel like, hey, if the economic boom is not going to be available to us such that I can afford to be a homeowner and have my own house and apartment, then my satisfaction is going to have to come from and in the workplace. It's going to have to be, especially now since the work hour has been extended or the work day has been extended to like, you know, in the 1960s and the 50s, it was like nine to five, right? Even it was in that. The, even in the 80s and early 90s, like yeah. I know what you mean, but like the people worked late or they didn't. But when you stopped, yeah. you stopped. Work was done because you were not there. And there was no phone, right? You're not like taking a BlackBerry, then iPhone, now whatever, Android home with you and you can't check on Saturday who's contacting you and whatnot. And now that has changed. The work dynamic and your relationship with work has definitely changed. There are very many, like there are lots of debates about whether or not that has contributed to an unhealthy or healthy society. But the fact is, the reality is the work day, the work week, the work life, the work existence, the work experience, that has all changed. And for millennials and a younger generation who can't or aren't able, or um, it's not available to them to own homes, their attitude is, hey, since work has to become so much of my life, I better be fucking satisfied. I'm not going to be running into walls and breaking bones. That's the Brendan Fraser example. But a level of satisfaction and protection and security is going to have to be available to me at work. And it starts where I work and the kinds of jobs and the kind of work I'm looking for. Sure. And, you know, perspectives also shift to the point where I've read a lot of, uh, a lot of articles where younger people are saying like, yeah, but I don't need to own a home. That is a, that's a construct of mm -hmm. a previous generation. It's not a, a car. Yeah. It's not a mark of success. I don't need that. Yes, there are, uh, yeah, there are car sharing services. If I need them, I can rent. It's, I don't need a home as my retirement policy and God, we could have a whole real estate conversation about what that means. But what's so interesting, though, about what you said just now, again, is does Brendan Fraser strike you as the kind of guy who loves his work? I mean, certainly in this article, and this is why this article was so, it really, I think, left a mark on people. And I guess that's why people tweeted us and emailed about it. And people were sort of talking about it on Twitter because there was such a profound sadness to it. There was something about, and he acknowledges that for a while he was sad and he was, he's, you know, emerging from that cloud, but there was something very bittersweet. There was a melancholy, right? It was, it was infected with a melancholy that I couldn't quite shake even after reading it. Like most celebrity profiles, you're like, yeah, amazing. Or wow. But I keep going back and thinking, there is there he has been scarred and we're we're seeing and to go back to your metaphor and your description of earlier about simplicity suddenly Brandon Fraser at 51 is much more complicated and interesting and i don't know if it's okay or kind or insensitive to say that cuz he obviously had to go through some shit to get to the point where he's complicated and therefore more interesting i I, I feel I feel conflicted saying something like that. Well, I feel conflicted because after not talking about Brendan Fraser for almost a decade, uh, I managed to misage him a few moments ago. He's actually 49, okay. not 51. All right. Uh, same, well, same. Yeah, same, same. 
But I feel conflicted maybe for another reason, because Brendan Fraser, of course, uh, kind of made his return, if you will, on the affair uh, last season, which if you're interested, if you're a Brendan Fraser fan, you can probably watch season three in isolation. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you need to have seen the previous two to know what's going on. You'll you'll get it. It's kind of a, a unit of its own. And then, of course, there's a moment in this GQ article which talks about how he barely knew what to do with himself in an interview on YouTube when he was promoting it. But the sadness and melancholia and isolation is exactly what comes through in that role in the affair. Mm -hmm. It seems like a deliberate choice almost to portray that side ah, of himself. Okay. It introduces a whole new Brendan Fraser. Oh, I like this. If you will. You're absolving me of my need to feel bad. Uh, I mean, I guess I was less surprised by this article as a result. Mm -hmm. Or he is either very savvy or a much more method actor than I thought because there's a lot of crossover between the role that he played last year and this article. They they seem to be very similar people. Oh, I love this. Okay. I I I get it. And of course, he um Danny Boyle is now working with him. They're working on a series about the Getty kidnapping and that is his um that is like in in Hillary Swank is in that and uh Donald Sutherland is in that it's not like i mean these are these are all people who've won oscars so it's not like uh Brandon Fraser is now doing lifetime movies no but that's like going to be the comeback right oh yeah and this is you're right Joanna this perhaps this GQ article is laying the groundwork for some comeback especially attached to the launch of the show what's the show called Trust. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? This is where you go, okay, are you a much more strategic thinker than we think? If you disappear as the star of The Mummy or The Scout or uh, or Blast from the Past or George of the Jungle, I can go on, uh, maybe you need to transition a bit when you come back. Uh, with, of course, this role in the affair with, as you say, sort of a huge star-studded cast in, in the upcoming trust. And, of course, with an accusation of molestation, as you said at the beginning, from the then president of the Hollywood Foreign Press. So, of course, what's so interesting about that is it is the time. It is the time when people want to listen. But actually, Brendan Fraser mentioned this years and years ago. Mm -hmm. I think the first reported instance of it is 2003. Right. And did you know about it? I didn't remember it. Like I would, I can say that I knew about it, but it wasn't one of those Hollywood facts and incidents that stay and stick. Well, I don't even know if it would have been reported properly then, right? Like, I, I don't know. And I mean, and he goes on and the writer goes on to reference that Sharon Waxman also uh, reported on it. And so it had been reported on, but yeah, was it one of those things that stuck? And this is obviously a case of timing and a moment where we are right now where these are going, these stories are going to get headlines because our consciousness has been raised. But he, 
What's interesting to me about his telling of that story is that he relates it to obviously what was going on in his personal life and his personal sense of failure. You used that word a little while ago in terms of how he contextualized the course of his career over the last decade. There's a sense here that this is somebody who saw himself as a failure, that he didn't get Superman, for example, that you know, he was so frustrated with who he was as an actor and how he had let down whatever side he needed to be on that he signed on to a movie he later realized. And he says, he signed on, he signs on to this movie where he gets the opportunity to beat himself up. And this, this recounting of a story with the former head of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association related to what he considers to be personal failure and professional failure is is also an interesting part of of how he's presenting himself. It's a humble person. It's somebody who's like, hey, I know who I was. This is Brendan Fraser in Hollywood version 2.0. This is what I would be bringing to my comeback, if we're going to call it that. But it is a really... It is a take on failure that I don't know that we get a lot of in Hollywood. I don't even know if it's it's failure in the sense that the more you read, the more you realize he was kind of always working. Uh, he, it seems like a personal accusation of failure of his own self-estimation. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Like he disappointed himself. It's not like he, I'm sure Superman was not the first role he mm-hmm. didn't get. Yeah. Uh, but he seems like his divorce hurt him very deeply. Not yeah. that divorce wouldn't, but some people, uh, you know, kind of rhyme them off. They were married briefly to so-and-so and briefly yeah. to so-and-so. Uh, the, the roles that he didn't get, the failure of his body, which yeah. happens to so many people, mm-hmm. seems to lie on him as a, yeah, something he let himself down for. And this is one of those places where it's like, wow, this is the indefinable pressure that Hollywood puts on you. Well, and it's also, haven't we talked about failure, the F word, in in terms of how it has been rebranded? J.K. Rowling in her commencement address at Harvard, talked about how we all have to fail, that failure is a part of success. And when we rebrand failure like that, we're trying, of course, in a positive spin way to make us less afraid of it, right? You kind of have to suck before you know how to not suck. But this is a different tone of failure. I, You know, there's motivational failure in the sense of this is a thing that you taught me and I always try and go for is um, you can't fix nothing. So just puke out your first draft. It's going to be terrible and it can be seen as a failure, but you can always improve on it. And again, I go back to J.K. Rowling's speech at Harvard and how uh, failure was positioned in that uh, address as don't be afraid of it. There are now books written about don't be afraid to fail. And so it's almost, failure has been almost given this like uplifting sheen, which I appreciate is necessary because we don't want to not fail ever as a process. 
Well, but this is not that. No, but I'm laughing at you a little bit because it's funny because now it's it's a, a language we're adopting in entertainment. But like, shout out to scientists who are listening. Like, failure is part of their whole process, right? This is programming. This is an intrinsic part of so many jobs is to try something, have it not work, and continue to work at something until it does work, right? Right. A million failed prototypes in a million places. Sure. But we're the only business or one of the few businesses that kind of collapses in on itself when something fails. It's, you're saying this Brendan Fraser article and this sort of discussion of failure is not the accept failure we've heard, but how can it be? We always talk about movies that have either disappointing box offices or incredibly successful box office, and there's nothing in between. Even a movie that succeeds, makes its money back, is considered to be not really a success. It's kind of a failure. There is a whole, the TV pilot program, which I've always talked about, uh, you know, there are many, many more pilots made than there are slots for shows. So we expect them to fail. That is a part of the way show business works and shows are made. And yet people still see it as, oh, it's a failure. It didn't go. I wonder if Brendan Fraser, again, who I unfairly aged earlier, who's really only 49, is internalizing part of an earlier system. Yeah. I mean, he could be internalizing what was an earlier system, but I think the reason why I'm so stuck on this is because I related it to a story that you pitched about Joss Whedon. And sure, this week it, uh, this week it was uh, confirmed that Joss Whedon, uh, and this was a Hollywood Reporter exclusive, exits the Batgirl movie. So he had been brought on by DC um, to see what he could do with Batgirl, and he uh, is no longer attached to the project, and this was his statement to The Hollywood Reporter. I quote, Batgirl is such an exciting project, and Warner's DC such collaborative and supportive partners that it took me months to realize I really didn't have a story. I'm grateful to Jeff and Toby. That would be uh, Jeff Johns and Warner Brothers Picture Group President Toby Emmerich. Um, I'm grateful to Jeff and Toby and everyone who was so welcoming when I arrived and so understanding when I, uh, is there a sexier word for failed? So this is Joss Whedon. I'm not the Joss Whedon expert. I would say you are more of a Joss Whedon expert, but this is in tone and in line with how cheeky and witty he can be. But in essence, what he has said is I failed. I was given the reins to imagine and reimagine what could have been a great superhero, Batgirl, especially right now when we're hungry, we're so thirsty for female, other female superheroes. And I couldn't do it. I, as he says, is there a sexier word than failed? I realized I really didn't have a story. And this is somebody who had a story for Avengers, is credited for how successful and amazing and fun 
the Avengers movie was. Of course, you can list off all his other successes from IMDb and his career. And this is someone who says- Like you're just actively trying not to say Buffy right now. Is that what's happening? (laughs) No, I actually, Firefly is what came to mind. But I'm, what I'm saying is this is, you know, this is somebody who's like, I've come up with lots and lots of stories and I have been celebrated for my stories and I couldn't do the story. I couldn't find the story. I failed. And yet, to go back to Brendan Fraser, that doesn't feel the same to me as Brendan Fraser's failure. Well, no. There's no melancholy I'm associating here with Joss Whedon to Brendan Fraser. I'm not worried about Joss Whedon. Well, no, because Joss Whedon told you that he failed and Brendan Fraser takes time out of interviews to go shoot some arrows and like get his emotions out. <laughs> yeah. Remember that part? I mean, Joss Whedon saying he failed in addition to, yes, seeming charming and self-aware and whatnot allows him to say it before other people say it. If Sarah were here with us, she would point out that uh, there were drafts of a script of Wonder Woman attributed to Joss Whedon that were leaked that were very terrible. They were very, very bad. I read them. I don't know if he actually wrote them, but they were very terrible. They were attributed to him. Yes, they were. This may be a Joss Whedon graceful way that they let him off the hook saying like, you don't got it anymore. This is him allowing himself to put the spin on things. And because he's had such a golden touch, it seems kind of novel and new. Brendan Fraser doesn't have, as I always say, the capital to put a spin on his Failure, if it is failure, a lot of people have made a lot fewer projects with a lot less box office and don't see themselves that way. But that's what's so interesting. It's all about his self-perception leaking through. Joss Whedon clearly still thinks Joss Whedon is awesome. (laughs) Even if the rest of us fell out of love with him after last year. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Like, he's still like, yeah, I'm amazing. And DC will find something for me and it'll we'll figure it out. And I'm sure we'll make another Avengers movie. And or Netflix. I'm going <laughs> to slide my way into 60 with no problem. He is not, Joss Whedon is not worried about Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. But Brendan Fraser has deeply disappointed Brendan Fraser. Mm-hmm. And that's the vibe that we're carrying here. You know, you talked about the spin that we put on things. And so a failure in conversation. A, con- a conversation about failure, I wonder, is just the other side of a coin about how we define success. And um, process. Like, it's yeah. a conversation about process. That's it. You're right. And your point is that in Hollywood, in this business, which we are adjacently in attached to, does have a very specific definition of what success looks like and how it can change so quickly that those who are caught up in a success of a simpler time suddenly find themselves losers in a new time. Well, because the roles are always shifting and changing, right? I just think, yeah, it's that's kind of what's interesting too. When I said earlier, Brendan Fraser is not a writer, he's not a director, he doesn't have social media, he has never had a personal persona. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Will Smith and how Will Smith being 
charisma man is almost his greatest role, right? Like it's the, it's what he was born to play. Brendan Fraser may not have an off-screen persona. Like we know as much about him from this article as, as in the last 25 years. All of a sudden, part of, part of being able to play in Hollywood, part of the new rules is this thing where you're supposed to be yourself and in and among that is, and tell us about the times that you fail. And that even of itself seems to absolve you and make you more three-dimensional and interesting and fun. And they're just like us. And I wish he felt more able to. I wish that he didn't feel like, I don't know, it's hard to talk about this without talking about his accusation of what happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, At a luncheon held by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, um, and it was in the summer of 2003 at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Yeah, I guess the thing that keeps hanging over this whole conversation is that even when he talks about it now, you get the impression that he blames himself somehow for, not for not stopping it, I hope, I hope to God, but maybe that when he talked about it in 2003, that it didn't start a movement, Mm -hmm. that he didn't come out sooner, that he, that it, that he let it affect him so much. I'm not sure, but there's, as you say, a profound sadness and also a shouldering of failures that I'm not sure he needs to wear. Well, you're, I, you hit it exactly right because his quote is, I didn't want to contend with how that made me feel or it becoming part of my narrative. <sighs> yeah, I know. Right? Um, and at the same time, he did something. Like, I mean, he went to people and what ended up happening was an apology letter was written. Um, his reps asked for a written apology and um, the person's name is Philip Burke, the former head of the HFPA. Um, and he admits that he wrote a letter, but denies that the letter was like an actual admission and recounting of the incident as, um, Brendan remembers it. It was an, I'm sorry if you were offended. Correct. But to go back to what you're, you're really drilling down to, it's, it's all wrapped up in his own sense of who he was and what he was doing with his career. There is also here a sense of, did I do enough, but I, did I want to do enough? And there's a lot, the, the cycle here is of blame for, for Brendan, for sure. So my last question, I guess, is, I asked you earlier, like, does this seem like a guy who loves acting, who loves films? I don't get that impression. And you kind of wonder whether it's one of those people who, he's not one of those annoying people who is a dick in interviews and then implies that he's shy and hates attention like some people. Uh Um, But you kind of wonder whether he would be happier somewhere else. I guess my most positive and optimistic answer to that question would be, I'm not sure he loved what he was doing before. It does sound like he's starting to love what he's doing now. Okay. I hope. That makes me curious. Yeah. I... I don't I can't say that I was much interested in trust given even though Danny Boyle and Donald Sutherland and Hillary Swank are in it 
But I can say that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm much more interested in it now. And what's interesting is that, of course, this story was just told in All the Money in the World. So Donald Sutherland is playing the Kevin Spacey slash Christopher Plummer role. <laughs> and Hilary Swank is playing the Michelle Williams role. And Brendan Fraser is stepping into the Mark Wahlberg role. Uh, and <laughs> there's going to be, I will, I, we haven't seen it, but I can make the prediction. I do think that there's going to be a lot more nuance and, uh, again, complication versus simplification to this than what Marky Mark brought to it. If you can't wait until then, check out The Affair, season three, where Brendan Fraser makes his return. Tell us what you think. I'm not sure what I think. So it's Oscar week. We are six days from the Oscars. We will be there. Oh my God, we are. It's really close now. It's really close. Um, and again, I can't, I don't, I know you love and laugh at me when I do this, but I can't even count what year this is for us. It's been a lot of years. <laughs> and we are literally right beside the red carpet. Um, this is your favorite thing. When I'm working on the live show, you take your laptop and go into the lobby and watch Catherine Zeta-Jones getting dressed. Oh, yeah. I like I ride the elevators to see which stylists take dresses that I later see on celebrities. Okay, P.S. I just want to flash back to men, like I don't know how many years ago when um, you – you currently are obsessed. You want like one of your favorite people is Chrissy Teigen. Yeah, and you rode an elevator with John Legend and Chrissy yes. Teigen pre pre your obsession pre with Chrissy Teigen. I did not care. I was more. I was much more interested in John Legend. And at looking the time. back on that now, you're yes. like, <laughs> you know, looking back on that now, looking back on that now, she was taller than me. Let's assume we were both in flat-ish shoes because if she's going to stand on the red carpet all night, she's not going to walk in in heels at nine in the morning. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is a model, but I'm a tall person. Chrissy Teigen was taller than me. Hey. Okay, I can't believe that was your recollection and <laughs> and your memory. Everybody's like, that's what you want to share with us, Duanna? I mean, the other a thing I have off? to... Well, the other thing I have to share now that we've gone to this place in our podcast is that uh, I think it was last year or two years ago, I had my favorite elevator story. And I'm sorry to tell you that it doesn't involve a celebrity. But... Oh, I remember. Yeah. I was riding the elevator with a very haughty, very busy uh, producer type woman. And look, everybody's busy. Everybody's haughty. Everybody has a million places to be. Probably we one we of gotta Ryan go. Seacrest's producers. Um, and she was very, you know, uh, focused and business-like. And so that's fine. I get it. I, like, you're not a celebrity. I'm not going to look at you either. Except all of a sudden she jumped over to me in the friendliest, warmest voice and went, hey girl, hey, which is what made me think of it. And she held out her thumbs <laughs> to compare them with mine. I have short thumbs. I will take a picture and post them in the show notes for you. More specifically, I have a rare, uh, I guess it's a mutation. <laughs> it's a mutation called Brachydactyly 8. But Come on. Sorry, Brachydactyly D. There's a name for your thumb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is more commonly known as 
Megan Fox thumb. Googling this right now. Megan Fox also has brachydactyly D, which is a shorter <laughs> thumb. Uh, I believe that Malin Ackerman also has brachydactyly D. <laughs> and a very important high-ranking producer at the Oscars bonded with me in the elevator over our thumbs. Oh my God, now I'm looking at Megan Fox's thumb. And? The, it is your thumb. Correct. Like you have, it's, 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 um, it's short and wide. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not, there's no, all of the phrases that describe this other than <laughs> brachydactyly D. Oh my God. It's also called troll's thumb. Oh, see, I've heard murderer's thumb. Club thumb. Toe thumb. She's talked about it in uh, interviews before. Like she discusses her wonky thumbs on Jay Le- with Jay Leno. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Chrissy Teigen, do you also have brachydactyly D? Please advise. <laughs> or or its other name or its other name toe thumbs. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know it's your th- your No, thumb. I'm not. I, I but this is what I don't think people understand. Like they're quite precious to me. I'm not going to I, how can you hate something that's attached to your body? Like, those are my thumbs. I'm very oh proud of them. Oh, my God. It's Brachydactyly Thumb. Oh, my. I, you know, you must also love that it has such a fun name. Brachydactyly. Yes. yes. All right. I love it. Also, uh, before we leave this very important topic, I also knew a woman in university who had one of each, which to me is maybe weirder. Like a non-toe thumb and a, a thumb, a toe thumb? That's right. Okay. And maybe that's what Malin Ackerman has. Not sure. Stand by. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So we brought up the Oscars because uh, one of the Best Picture nominees is Get Out, directed by Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele has been nominated for Best Picture and Best Director and Screenplay. That's right. And Daniel Kaluuya is nominated for Best Actor. That's right. So Get Out came out over a year ago now. It's one of those, it's very rare, right? Like we talk about a path of a film, like an awards path. And I don't know that anybody was expecting when Get Out came out that it would still be in the conversation and in the conversation for Oscar. Um, Already when it came out, the box office was enough, right? The buzz, the box office, it was acclaimed. It's one of the most uh, highly rated, critically well-reviewed films of 2017. An Oscar contender at the time, I'm not sure anybody would have predicted it or would have like put money on it. But here we are, get out one of the nominees for Best Picture. Well, and you know, auspiciously, though we didn't know it at the time, um, it did incredible box office even on Oscar weekend, which is not usually a huge weekend for movies. Now, I know this because I spent my last weekend listening to every podcast I could find on Get Out, reading every article I could read on Get Out because I am one of those people who did not see it until two weeks ago. And you're seeing it as your research because we're going and this is what you do. I I know your schedule um, in January and February before we do, we go. Um, You catch up on your movies to make sure Yeah, I load up. Yes. You load up because we're writing it the night of the Oscars. So. Right. And sometimes we've talked about this. Sometimes I read a script in, in September or October when a movie comes out. 
I don't always have the time to go to the same screenings at TIFF or similar. So yeah, I load up and I was maybe a little bit dragging my feet on Get Out uh, because horror films are never on the top of my list. Me neither. I didn't know what to expect in that way. Yep. Uh, because we are big Jordan Peele fans in my house and big Key and Peele fans in my house. Uh, and I didn't know how I was going to feel if a departure from what I knew was, was not as appetizing. Uh, see also Keegan-Michael Key in Friends from College. Like that's not a great follow-up. Uh, so I didn't know what I was expecting. I dragged my feet. God, am I happy that I did so. Now you're obsessed. I'm obsessed. So you had to listen to all these podcasts. And then this article comes out uh, a few days ago in Vulture, um, obviously ahead of the voting period or during the voting period for the Oscars. But also seems a little bit like it was tailored for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So uh, in the article in Vulture is by Jada Wan and Hunter Harris. Jada, who we mentioned recently is one of the writers that we we love and have loved over the last couple of years from Vulture. And it's called The First Great Movie of the Trump Era. It was published on February 22nd. Um, and again, this is right in that sweet spot of the voting period for the Oscars. It's an oral history of, sing it with me, the work that goes into the movie. I don't, do you know how to estimate like how many words an article is without just copy and pasting it? No, but I, I know what you're getting at, or at least I, this is, I don't know what the words are, but I look at the bar on the side of the page. Right? Yeah. And how little it is. That's right. And when I see that there's a lot of space, I, that's when I like tuck in and I'm like, okay, what do I have to drink? Please everybody shut up. Leave me alone. I am spending time on this read. This was a great, great read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not recommend it if you haven't seen the movie, but if you have been hesitating or you're not sure that it is for you, or if you just haven't watched the movie in a while, God, this is a delicious follow-up. I'm so, so happy to have read this just a few days after I saw the movie. Look, I and there's so many, we could spend an entire podcast literally talking about the work of this piece and this oral history, because it is as close to a 360-degree snapshot of how a film gets made from picking the locations and deciding on the design, for example, of the sunken place and what they wanted visually for the sunken place to look like and how that, to, and how that would feel. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because obviously a lot of the talk around Get Out has talked about the, the message in the script, right? The story of a literal interpretation of the microaggressions and straight up aggressions that black people feel in roomfuls, gatherings full of white people. Uh, And Jordan Peele has called it a social thriller. But what I love about this article is that what it reminds you is that had all the rest of the technical work not been perfect, had everybody not thought out mm-hmm. every last angle, every last camera pickup, every last wardrobe choice, the message of the movie would not have been sold as well 
you would have been distracted by other things and not been able to just sit there and marvel in the holy shit, look what they did. Well, look, we talked about this last week with Black Panther, right? The lighting, the costuming, the creating of the world of Wakanda, that 100% Ryan Coogler should and is getting credit for his vision and his script, but names are coming out of that. Ruthie Carter um, in terms of uh, costume design and People are talking about the production design, the waterfall scenes. And, and so this is... I came out of that movie screaming because we didn't know the visual effects designer before. Yes, exactly. And so again, here too, this oral history is giving us some idea of, yeah, all that work that goes into being able to complement a message. 100%, would the message have been conveyed um, without the attention to detail and the precision in scouting the location, designing the sunken place, the colors, even Alison Williams talking about the outfits that she pictured herself in, in certain scenes to gain the trust of the audience. These are all the small details that shouldn't feel like it was effort when you're watching the film, but 100% is full of effort when you consider the whole package of the film. Well, they're laying in your subconscious, which is extra interesting in the context of this movie, right? There's all kinds of details that Mm -hmm. are designed for you not to notice, are designed for you to have a seamless experience. But when when you look at how much thought went into them, that's how beautiful it is. Well, and... And I really like the, I mean, you and I are details people and you, when you sent this to me, you were like, this is pornographic, which is the way we always describe these kinds of articles that we send to each other about work. Like how if something is pornographic, it means that we're getting off on all these work details and details, um, you know, details as, as seemingly innocuous as uh, Lil Rel Howery, who plays like Chris's friend, his best friend, the TSA agent, who's like, constantly on the phone with him being like, literally, get out. You're in a horror movie. Get out. (laughs) Yeah. And he's talking about the first scene um, that they shot in the airport. And of course, as I said, we could take away every quote from this, from this like long scroll of a read. And he's like, I was worried about my hair. Like, you know, they, they were, this is what he said. He said, the first thing they shot was the airport scene in LA. And it was just me, my hair person at the time. I don't know what he thought he was shooting, but he had no clippers or anything. I was like, hot irons. Who do you think is shooting this? Rick James, man, I'm the only person on the call sheet. I couldn't get a fresh cut for my big motion picture, man. And this is a funny anecdote, but again, this tells you what everybody is bringing to this film. The message is that important that they were thinking about every Every last detail, every last hair literally on someone's head has to be taken into consideration. Well, what's interesting about that to me too is that a lot of these actors are people we didn't know a lot of before. They're people who you rely on them being new faces to to sell the story. But It cannot be denied that a big part of this article and a big part of the movie experience for me was recognizing the work put into the effortlessness of Rose played by Allison Williams. Okay, Allison Williams. 
subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic Autobotulinum Toxin A is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. I mean, where do we begin? Like, this is, I say this because Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener, who play Rose's parents, are known excellent quantities, right? Like, you make any movie at all, and you're like, oh, we have them for the parents. You're like, great, good for you. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya is now nominated for an Oscar for this role, was essentially an unknown before this and Black Mirror and Black Black Panther Panther. all kind of happening for him in and around the same time. Yeah. Uh, I also have to pause here and talk about the greatest thing to happen on the internet in the past week is an interview with Daniel Kaluuya and Letitia Wright that Kathleen sent to us uh, where, you know, they kind of ask him how his parents feel about his success in the context of did they want you to be an actor? And he responds by saying, they're like, well, I hope you get more jobs out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just so glorious. immigrant, immigrant. It really is. At the risk of looking at a movie that's about the black experience in the middle of a white world, uh, and giving all the credit to a white actress, I thought that this was just kind of an ingenue role that she was playing. I thought this before I saw the movie. I thought, well, they needed somebody and she's kind of a name, but she's not that expensive. And she kind of has that like perfect China doll thing going on. How wrong I was. And I kind of have to say that I don't feel like this has been a huge conversation over the past year. I'm not sure whether a lot of people are putting her performance aside in favor of the bigger picture of the movie, which is totally fair. But I was surprised. Were you surprised when you saw it? I I don't know that I was like blown away. Like, oh my God, this is Alison Williams' moment. I thought she was perfect for the role. I understand why she was chosen. And I thought she fit in seamlessly with the message. So in that respect, sure, I completely agree that she contributed to the success of the picture. Did I at the time want to highlight that or feel it needed to be highlighted? No. Yeah. Um, That said, in reading this article, there is one quote that stood out to me about her approach to her image and her work decision to take on this character. 
and she talks about how um how she and and Jordan Peele talked about you know how to approach it and she says quote Jordan told me that he had always pictured me as Rose because Peter Pan or Marnie would make it easier for people to trust me which I think tells you something about Jordan Peele and who he was looking for 100% he needed Rose because at the beginning, like, if you don't know anything about the movie and you went into it fresh, you weren't like, and, and it was done well enough. And of course, for those of you who are like, I knew it was going to happen, like, save it. Okay. The whole point was that she was the wokest. She was this girl who like was in love with him and you like nothing pinged you about her. In fact, as they're saying here, Peter Pan or Marnie would make it easier for people to trust me. But what I love about that is that Marnie, the character, would have thought of herself as the wokest uh, while being repugnant. Uh, We could digress into a whole conversation about girls that we're not going to here. But what makes this movie work on top of all the other things is she's not playing that character. Alison Williams and Daniel Kaluuya have real chemistry in this movie. Oh, yeah. They have real connection. You buy that on some level, obviously, some of it is a front and some of it's quite real and delicious. And then she goes on to say, quote, I was looking for a role that would weaponize everything that people take for granted about me. So I instantly signed on to it. That, like, to weaponize your popularity, your let's say, your beckiness. Yeah, your vulnerability, <laughs> your right. need for people to protect you. Um, and so what she was saying is, I know what you people say about me. I know that I'm a Becky. I know that that's when we're thinking about who Beckys are. Yeah, I would come up. And I wanted to subvert that and use it to my advantage. I thought, okay, Alison Williams, as I'm reading this, I was like, all right, so do I need to re-see this movie? I've seen it twice, but I haven't seen it in four months. Um, do I want to go back now and assess her uh, manipulation of her own beckiness? I think there's probably so many things to be seen here at the deft-handedness of how these people hand the movie off to one another. And also, I think... I just said that Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener are like, well, wow, those are your gets. But they really are supporting characters in this movie. This movie really is carried by Alison Williams and Daniel Kaluuya. And in a separate conversation, I heard her talking about how people kept trying to come up to her and convince her that she was less less culpable than her character turns out to be, that they were trying to convince the actress, Alison Williams, that the character was less evil uh, than the movie portrays her to be. And the fact that she chose that anecdote to tell, that she tried to point out, yeah, there are people, uh, you know, white people, trying to tell me that I wasn't as bad as the character turns out to be is really, really interesting. She's doing an interesting job of weaponizing her vulnerability, if that's the phrase she chooses. Yeah. And yet, I I don't know that I'm mad about the fact that um, 
the conversation around Get Out hasn't focused on Allison Williams. No. You know, as you addressed earlier, you were like, the message of this movie is the most important thing. And so, yeah, I mean, and we're here right now and we've spent a few minutes talking about Allison Williams. And so that is, that is the push pull of what we're trying to do in the podcast and def- certainly a conflict that I am feeling right now. And I want to put it out there 100% get out is not an opportunity to be like, Allison Williams, you're so amazing. Um, that said, there is something here about how we move forward and how we affect change through art and who needs to be on side and, and recognize a role they can play. People of color and women of color in particular have been talking for many, many years, and hopefully they're just now starting to be heard about intersectionality, about how the women's movement was not inclusive at the beginning and sometimes still now. In, in more layman's terms, that when women were fighting for more rights and women of color were saying, we're not getting the rights that you are fighting for, they were told, in effect, uh, be patient. Wait your turn. It mm-hmm. will come That's for right. You. And so here's Alison Williams, who's, as, as we just talked about, exploiting her privilege um, in – in a way, you know, her beckiness and using the comfort and the trust that people will have just by looking at her. Like, for example, she's not going to get pulled over, right? Right. Um, and then kind of saying, but hey, that kind of advantage is poisonous. Let me play that. It is also a recognition of the advantages that white women have had over women of color and perhaps a, hey, wake up. Let us all wake up. I did it in my art. Can we transfer that into life? Yeah. I mean, I, I, my question, I guess, is about the word exploiting, right? Like there are lots of people who would go nowhere near a role that makes them look in any way, uh, less than appealing. And there are a lot of people who wouldn't be offered it and who couldn't play it. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting continuum to continue to explore because to your point, if we're going to, if we're going to keep going and keep having art that challenges us and brings us to, uh, a place of greater kind of revelation and understanding, then, it takes everybody. It takes people playing roles they haven't played before. It takes sort of reimaginings of all of everything we've seen. You know, Black Panther very, uh, very visibly has only two white characters, and one of them is looks like an idiot the whole time. Well, one or- of <laughs> one's an idiot and one's evil, yes. right? Like those yeah. are the two options you have. And yeah. I think it was not very long ago that there were all kinds of movies where those were the only roles for people of color. So these are small shifts. Well, to take it back to awards season and to relate it to another role that perhaps occupies the opposite side of the coin, you know, to take it back to awards season and these kinds of roles, this might be a really interesting comparison. And I would write an essay about this, or I wish I 
thought of this earlier, because the pushback against three billboards and the Sam Rockwell role is that you are presenting um, a character who has had, who plays a cop, he plays a cop, and it is implied, no, not even implied, like it's it's said in the film that he is racist. It's overt, yeah. He yeah. is, yes. And so there's police brutality involved. And by the end of it, what many people who have objected to Three Billboards are saying is that he almost gets a redemption arc. And in comparison, the Allison Williams, the Allison Williams role starts where Sam's ends and then ends where Sam's begins. And I think this is the difference that you're talking about in who takes the roles and what kind of roles people will accept. Allison Williams is saying, I'm taking on a role that by the end of the movie, I'm the, the, the biggest evil. Like, yeah. I'm the big bad. The big bad in Get Out is represented. The vessel for the big bad and racism is Allison Williams. Well, I have to quote one more line from this article here. She talks about, uh, in the same conversation with Jordan Peele, saying to him, if her whole family died, would she keep doing this? This being, uh, we're just going to spoil it. I fucking it's been love that. 370 years, uh, yeah. 370 days now. Uh, that it's body snatching of black bodies for use by, by white people, uh, for inhabiting by white people. And so, yeah, she asked him, if her whole family died, would she keep doing this? And he said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. She was like, got it. I know yeah. who this person is. It's a great character question it's in terms of question. getting to motivation and, and getting to who you're playing. And again, to contrast with Sam Rockwell, that is not where Martin McDonough is taking that character. Um, and so, yes, in the conflict that I personally am having about talking about Alison Williams' character and the work that she put into it on this film – by no means do I want to just highlight it in this conversation, but I do think that deeper down, there is something to be said about the future of, as you say, Duanna, the roles that can be taken by white actors who may have had an advantage that their black and people of color, actors of color counterparts haven't. Absolutely. And then, of course, it comes down to there being films like this. I can't talk for long about this because I'm going to kill myself. But this is Jordan Peele's first picture. Uh-huh. Uh, you and I have talked uh, this week about Ryan Coogler, who is 31 years of age. 31. As of press time, has his first movie was Fruitvale Station, followed that with Creed, followed that with a little movie called Black Panther. All of those films are top quality, unreal filmmaking. And this is what happens when you allow new voices, when you get new stories from people who have not been steeped in a, in the traditional hero's story, which served us very well for some time, but God knows it's not the only story, university writing professors, um, then you get these, these movies, these stories that slay right out of the gate. They don't need to ramp up to being something interesting that we're going to talk about. They are stories that have been being brewed in people for long enough that when they finally get the opportunity to mm -hmm. tell them, they are fully formed and excellent. 
which goes back to the point about Jordan Peele knowing every frame of this movie. Mm-hmm. I think he said he wrote it in two five months minutes. or something. Yeah. yeah. It, it, because it had been there for so long. So, yes, the more we have different stories, different people playing villains, different people being held up as heroes, the better the whole quality gets because they've had so long to think about it instead of making a student film and then being handed $200 million to make Sword Smash 3. But let me say this, just to keep it in perspective, because there's a long way to go. You mentioned Daniel Kaluuya. Yep. And the trajectory for Daniel Kaluuya was Black Mirror, Get Out, Black Panther. All of that converged around the same time, right? Black Mirror got the attention of both Jordan Peele and Ryan Coogler. He made those films. They come out. They bookend sort of what's an extraordinary year, right? So uh, Get Out comes out at the beginning of 2017. Black Panther comes out at the beginning of 2018. So now he is in, um, he's the lead in an Oscar-nominated film and gets his Oscar nomination for Best Actor alongside some great names. And then, you know, to cap off his like victory lap, he's going to the Oscars, riding the success of one of the most successful movies of all time. And he doesn't have a small part in it either. Um, And so... He has a thankless part, maybe, but not a small part. <laughs> yeah, he's he's present. Yeah. He's there. I feel like if Daniel Kaluuya was somebody else, a white actor, he'd be a much more marquee name. Like, we'd be talking about the year, the breakout year of Daniel Kaluuya, Oscar-nominated, starring in one of the most talked about and controversial and provocative films of 2017, and a role in Black Panther, blah, 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 blah. I think that you know more about Daniel Kaluuya and you recognize him more and there's more headlines and he's on the cover of magazines. He's doing talk shows. He's making the rounds. I don't think that Daniel Kaluuya, we know him. I get it. We're talking about it right now, but I don't think he's got like mass penetration. No. You know who has mass penetration? Mm. Michael B. Jordan. Uh Uh-huh. Michael B. Jordan is having the treatment that Uh, you're talking about. Not complaining about that. Even though he's not nominated for an Oscar. Right. Even though he's not had quite the giant year in the same way. Um, Daniel Kaluuya is, of course, British. He is arguably a shyer person in interviews than uh, Michael B. Look at me, please, Jordan. (laughs) With your Hulk sweaters? Uh, And, you know, and there are other factors that may also be playing into the conversation we're not having. Hint, hint. You know, we, we, we know what we're talking about here. So by no means is any of this a fix. By no means is any of this like, okay, job done. I I don't disagree with you there at all. But, you know, another way of looking at it is nobody else could play these roles, these roles that are making Daniel Kaluuya the star that he's becoming, right? They're for him. And that's because we're telling new kinds of stories. So once again, I'm turning into a Mary Sunshine optimist. <laughs> uh I can be excited about that and without having to force myself. 
So we'll see what happens in six days. Here's my prediction. Get Out is not going to be shut out. I don't know what it's getting. Screenplay. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh. I think that the best shot, its best shot is screenplay. Let's find out. So here's a story that I wrote um, on the blog saying that I was going to pitch it to you for show your work. And this was a few days ago. And it was in response to Janelle Monet releasing a trailer for her new video and album. And Tessa Thompson's in it. And they've been showing up together to various events. And people have been like shipping them, speculating as to whether or not they're a couple. And I wrote in the post, neither one of them have ever come out. Um, there has been a lot of talk over the years about whether or not Janelle Monáe is gay. Um, and so, of course, there's a sensitive discussion around, should we be doing these things? And then on the other side, there's also a discussion around normalization. And we ship people who are straight all the time. And if we can get to the point where we're shipping and idolizing and writing fan fiction about two women and two men who are very, very famous, does that, does that normalize the conversation and get us to equality? We got a lot of response about uh, that post um, from as far away as Brazil, from women who are like, hey, I was married, I got divorced, I'm gay now, and it's only now that I realize how heteronormative society is, how heteronormative Hollywood gossip is, and I welcome this kind of talk. I want to know if Janelle and Tessa are together. Um, and then, just hours before we started this podcast, Janelle released the full version of a new video um, that uh, that Tessa is in. Yeah, make and me feel. Make me feel. It's hot. You can tell how good anything is by how little we talk during it. Uh, we sat here and watched it together without commenting or saying a word, just like making mental notes. And that's when I'm like, okay, I can see that it has our collective attention. Yeah. So a few places to go here. The the discussion points I brought up, but also this video and Janelle's work in this video and whether her work is also answers or whether or not her work is just work. It's art to be taken however you want to take it. She's not here to interpret it for you. Anyway, dot, 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 everything, everything, everything. We love Janelle Monet that maybe should be the discussion too. <laughs> I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, Janelle Monet is one of those amazing people who has been at a simmer for a long time. I saw her first at like an outdoor concert in Toronto that in retrospect, I'm like, who booked her for that? But I'm glad that they did because I fell in love with her and I did not stay for the headliner and I feel good about that decision. Um, she's been around, she's been like making appearances on Sesame Street. She's been like kind of cultivating a persona for a long time. It's, I can't watch this video, which I love without noting that for a really long time, her aesthetic and the story behind her aesthetic was like not showing any skin, not sexualizing herself. Remember for a really long time, she had her 
kind of tuxedo thing going. And black and white. Black and white tuxedo. Uh, I wouldn't call it androgynous, but it was certainly playing with some lines. And she was very straightforward about wanting to be seen for her music at that time. Yes? Yes. And I, you stole my point. Like, I wanted to, to first talk about the immediate impression here is, yes, when we see Janelle Monet and she makes a style point when she goes out on a red carpet, the focus of the color pattern is always black and white. She's introduced color here and there in accessories, and there might be like a pink stripe or there might be a purple slash, but black and white has always been where she's grounded her look. And she says it's an homage to her family members and her elders who worked in, who were, who were very middle class, who were very working class and their uniforms were often black and white. So that was, that was the idea behind her look. And this video is an explosion of color. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think a lot of people uh, noticed Janelle Monet last year in Hidden Figures, right? She actually was in two movies last year. She was having a bit of a year, mm -hmm. uh, much like we talked about Daniel Kaluuya. She was also in Moonlight, but she, okay, I'm going to make a controversial statement here. She kind of steals every scene that she's in in Hidden Figures for me. I know it's supposed to be Taraji P. Henson's movie, but. That's fair. I'm not fighting you on that. But also she is a a riot of color as much as a black woman working at NASA could be at that time. Uh, pun fully acknowledged and uh, ironically elbowed at. Uh, the, the, the clothes for her character, Mary Jackson, were spectacular. Yeah. The clothes, the makeup. All very much kind of her announcement on the scene. But then, as you said, at all the red carpets, four hidden figures at all the events, back to the black and white palette. And now here we are, and the video is called Make Me Feel. And like from, from the first frame, you, you do. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot that she's toying with in this video. To go back to the emails that we've gotten and the speculation and the shipping, Tessa Thompson is in this video. And there, it's quite suggestive. Um, Tessa Thompson is super into Janelle Monet in this video. But then there's a dude who shows up. And there are some scenes where Janelle is literally in the middle. And sometimes she's hanging out with the dude. And sometimes she's hanging out with Tessa Thompson. And Tessa well, she ricochets between yes. them. Like, yeah, I, I believe that the exception to my we didn't talk rule is when you said, that's not subtle. <laughs> and that was not a criticism. No, it wasn't a criticism at all. I was like okay, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. So, and she is like, and she of course is the star, right? She is in this video and she's the one who's wanted and desired by this sexy man and by this sexy Tessa. Um, and she's being, you know, Tessa at one point wraps her body around uh, Janelle and grinds on her. And Janelle is like, facing the dude and the dude's like, no, no, grind on me. And Tessa's like, no, no, grind on me. Oh, it's so funny that you saw that because I actually wrote a note about how exciting it was that Janelle gets to be the aggressor. I saw her as kind of, uh, yeah, uh, both are interested in her, but she chooses when she gets to go to oh, yes. one and the other. Right? I don't like dispute it's, that. It's no. her, she's driving the... Correct. 
the narrative. Yes. And so playing the the dominant role, mm-hmm. let's say, which I also thought was pretty exciting. There's also a play on like different selves. So she appears in several scenes like there's two of her and she's singing to herself. Right. Yes. And, and so, watching herself. Correct. Be- yeah, exactly. And uh, like amazing costume changes. And to your point about the way she used to dress, it wasn't like highly revealing. Um, it wasn't overtly bombshell sexual, but there is a lot of that in the, in this video. Some of the outfits are like, there's a lot of side boob. There's a close-up ass shot. Um, and oh a my pair God, of, those, like, there's those pants, pants right? Amazing see-through jeans. Yeah. These see-through jeans that then are also bedazzled and sequined. Um, we get a real close-up on her ass, and then it zooms out. You see that it's Janelle Monae wearing it, and then on top, she's kind of wearing a chain mail, right? Like, a chain mail, like, you're supposed to sort of put a sweater under it, and she puts no sweater under it, so you can see the breasts, you can see the side boob. So there's a lot of self-desire going on here, too. Oh, I love that phrase, self-desire. I think yeah. that's really, that's really excellent. Um the thing I, I ha- I'm looking at the video now, just sort of playing on mute. But what it made me think of most, and this is what I love about self desire, I immediately thought of George Michael. Mm. It felt very George Michael to you, me. It, you're right. The guitar playing scenes, yeah, and some of the dance moves where she's alone on the set and she, her back is facing to the camera and she's just kind of like doing a jig. And the color yeah. and the sort of yes. Like, Feeling yourself, for lack of a better term, you know? It, it's definitely a lot of faith. Yeah. Yeah. And faith was… And freedom, kind of. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And we know what the messages that George was sending out with faith and that whole era after he, he went solo. So what is, what is Janelle telling us? So here's my only thing. Like when you tell me about like… Should we be able to ship Janelle and Tessa? Like, should we be able to ship, uh, should we want to ship a same-sex couple or a poly couple or a poly uh, triad relationship, if that's what we're looking at or whatever? Hell yeah, I'm into that. That's a great idea. However, I feel this much weirded out by the idea that I'm supposed to be shipping like an on-screen relationship. Like, is it real or is it a, or is it for, you know, uh, is it a product essentially? Like, I never thought I would say these two names together, but I feel like it's a redux of the, uh, Haley and. (laughs) Yes. I was just thinking about that a few weeks ago when we talked about the secret obsessions of teens that we know nothing about. What what were their names? Annie and Hayden. Hanny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine has actually collapsed in giggles right now. Uh possibly because I am daring to talk about Tessa Thompson and Janelle Monet in the same breath as Annie and Hayden, stars of Chicken Girls. <laughs> which is an actual name of a YouTube series that they star in. Um, but my point is is there. I mean, they're 
exciting to look at, Janelle and Tessa. I have fun imagining what their, like, even what their night is like after the story of this video has finished. Like, they look like they're going to take on the town. There's there's Thelma and Louise to it. There's, uh, it, you know, there's all kinds of things. It's undeniably sexy and fun and exciting. But it's a story. It's a fiction. How can I then also ship the real people when they just sold me a story. Am I am I nuts? Am I crazy? Well, I guess about when we talk about this kind of shipping and the selling of a story, what makes it a little bit more sinister, I guess, than Hanny, that would be Annie and Hayden, um, is, you know, is that queer baiting? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I think first uh, we have to define what that is, right? Uh, queer baiting, uh, and help me out here, often the idea of trying to appeal to an LGBT audience uh, with a relationship that is not necessarily authentic, right? Yes. Or, for example, um, in recent times, James Franco has been accused of queer baiting because he's given interviews and he's done roles where he has uh, he he's could, kind of winking about his sexuality exactly and that endears him for example to the gay community of course which has a lot of power carries a lot of cachet um in terms of who James Franco is as an artist and what circles he's accepted in and also i want to say like uh you said carries a lot of cachet but i think one of the uh issues and questions about queer baiting is that also like there are economic advantages to appealing to an LGBT audience that doesn't always get a lot that is made specifically for them. Right. And then the layers after that are, it's acknowledging number one, which is good, that the gay community, the LGBTQ plus community has power and has leverage and is taking their views into consideration and considering them as a demographic to appeal to. But on the flip side, it's when it comes to people like James Franco, can you abuse the goodwill you've built within the LGBTQ plus community and yet not be truly on side with their struggles and their issues? Well, God knows we've seen hypocrisy from James Franco, right? Yeah. Like we don't need to no. wonder whether he can be disingenuous. And no one is saying here that Janelle and Tessa are the same. Let's be clear here. The conversation as a broad conversation is when we're playing with reputations and images and storylines and narratives, as you said, um, it's one thing to be like that with Twilight and Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, but does it take more sinister tones when you do it with a couple that may or may not belong to a community that has been marginalized? I mean, I'm thinking, uh, and my thoughts in order are that the story of the video is of two women of color who are clearly into one another fictionally, right? And that's not something we get to see a lot, right? Hell no. Um, seeing uh, black, indigenous, or other people of color who are in same-sex relationships is shockingly underrepresented. Yeah. So, Unfortunately, still radical. Yeah, absolutely. For dozens of different reasons, yep. right? So first of all, uh, that's something here that we see 
far too rarely. I have to point out that this is one of those places where Orange is the New Black has been at the forefront and doesn't get enough credit for having done so. Uh, but it does kind of go under-acknowledged. So first of all, that's a, a net positive, I think. Uh, and then I think this is slightly different than an acting role because there's no, unlike a, if we talk about Janelle Monet in Hidden Figures, we talk about her playing Mary Jackson, right? And sometimes some of the issues with queer baiting are that actors who play uh, especially straight actors who play uh, gay characters, s- distance themselves, uh-huh. right? That's not me. That was like, that was a character and that yeah. was a thing. And by the way, why didn't they ask? Like, why yeah. didn't they find a gay character to play that role? But whatever. Uh, and I think the glory of music videos is that it's almost never seen that way, right? Mm-hmm. We never say, oh, this is a video where Drake plays a character who blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No, in every music video, Drake plays Drake and Janelle Monet plays Janelle Monet. Right. That's the accepted conversation, right? right? So to me, I think it's it's a closer nod to, uh, yeah, this is a facet of who I am. It may not be all of who I am, but this is a uh, this is something I can identify with. I mean… And I don't know if I'm mad at it, even if it's not, though. To go back to your original question, am I uncomfortable with it because it's a narrative and a story they're trying to sell me? I think that if if Janelle Monet and Tessa Thompson are not gay… Um, and, or even not together. They can be gay and yeah, not be dating, Exactly. Right? And they are like, let's do this in a video. We're both stars on the rise, for in Tessa's case… And in Janelle's case, like, simmering and now has exploded. Sorry, sorry. I just have to, like, go back to stars on the rise, Tessa Thompson. I just, like, I know you're already rolling your eyes. I know what you're going to say. Two I words. know you do. I know the two words you're going to say. <sighs> Veronica Mars, guys. Mm-hmm. Veronica Mars, season two, circa 2005. Yeah, they saw Tessa Thompson coming. Anyway, please continue. So these are two names um, and, and getting to be quite famous. Janelle has been famous probably like longer if you, yes, yes. longer and more substantially. Yes. Um, and saying, Hey, let's just do this in a video. And we're not even afraid of any pushback we're going to get from it. That is that progress. I would like to say yes. In the, what Mary Sunshine way that you talked about earlier, I would like to say that's cool. That's okay. Yeah. It's, it's okay. It's cool. It's delicious. And it doesn't preclude uh, the other glorious eventuality mm-hmm. of Hollywood, which is that sometimes people who are co-stars later fall in love. So you can ship it that way too <laughs> if you want to. I, it's so interesting in terms of tracking where we've come because there were stars not too long ago who couldn't do this or who'd worry about the effect or who'd, who'd do it like to provoke a scandal. Like at the VMAs when Madonna brought out Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears and there was a kiss, it was, remember the reaction? Like, remember? Yeah, but you also have to remember the context, right? Britney Spears uh, and Christina Aguilera, like against her will, were marketed as Mm -hmm. Christian teenagers who were good girls who were doing 
uh, music and, and sort of walking the line of titillation. And like we're forced to say they were virgins in the press and like it was preposterous. But anyway, um, that was part of what that was doing, right? Was yeah. poking holes in that. Part of the freedom of a video like this and just getting to enjoy it for what it is and like it's just a great time and a great video and a great song is not having all those strictures to to shake off. Well, that's what I mean is that this wasn't like let me get away from the good girl image, Christina and Brittany, that were created for us. And the best way to do that is to dance provocatively around Madonna and kiss her. This is just a, it'd be great for a video. Whatever. We're not, as you say, we're not shaking off any kind of um, expectation and redoing our image, like a la Miley Cyrus, for example. Right. And nobody's riding any coattails in this situation, Madonna. Yeah. Nobody is here to exploit this for anything other than a great video and like the overdue return of colored tights. Well, and, but also then to go back to normalization and what we consider to be radical, um, it's, we need to get to the point where going gay or queer baiting isn't a way to change your image um, and to quote unquote corrupt a good girl. Do you know what I mean? Because there's still, like in that Madonna and Britney Spears example, what it was was what can a good girl do that would be considered as bad? So you're still associating that kind of behavior, exploring your sexual identity, experimenting as a bad thing. Well, that launched Katy Perry's career, right? Mm -hmm. I kissed a girl and I liked it Mm -hmm. is a scandalous confession. Now, Katy Perry was literally brought up by evangelical preachers. Like, so there's a a learning curve there. But it kind of brings up the next question too, which is, does it need to be about one identification or another or is it about the freedom to have uh, a playful sexual or romantic interest in people that does not have to be a declaration about anything? Well, I think, you know, that I think that's what this video is doing. Sometimes I might not, sometimes I might want to hang with him and sometimes I might want to hang with her and sometimes I want it to be the three of us. Yay. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yay. Yes. And, you know, yeah. And it doesn't have to mean anything more than what it means, which is this is a great track and a great video that I will proceed to play all weekend. Okay. But I do really want them to be girlfriend and girlfriend. <laughs> because like, I belong in high school. Okay. Like you want them to hold hands and like go to the grocery store? Yes. I want them to get popped holding hands. I, like, the way that Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez are, I want to see Janelle and Tessa. I mean, uh, again, this is where you go, Mary Sunshine. I go cynic. If it's going to happen, I want the real love story. I want the full notebook. Uh, We just couldn't help it. We were working together and we… Okay, fine. We tried our best, but… I think we're we're saying the same thing. Just your your writing of the story is different from the story that I'm going to write. (laughs) the exasperation on your face (laughs) where's Kathleen because I feel like Kathleen would back me on this she would be the high school she would be high school squealing with me too 
Tessa doodled, and Janelle forever XOXO. You doodle their names on your Trapper Keeper. <laughs> yes. I will uh, adopt half of the outfits, uh, including the yellow sandals on green tights. Uh-huh. And I will meet you back here to discuss. So our final story of this episode is, um, I guess, fitting because the Olympics concluded yesterday. And I read the article on Chloe Kim that is on the cover of the new issue of Sports Illustrated, but their focus definitely was around Chloe Kim, but also on Olympic millennials and how Chloe Kim and other young Olympic stars are set to shine for longer than ever before. So this is a new cohort of athletes that are coming to fame the top of their sport um, in the era of social media. Chloe Kim, very famously, during the competition, the final um, for the half pipe, was tweeting. <laughs> like, like she- if you don't know who she is, <laughs> like snowboarder, yes? Yes. Like, yeah, between runs, right? Between was like- runs was tweeting. Anyway, I'm going to make this medal or I'm not, but I'm really hungry. <laughs> yeah. She was tweeting about food. She's 17 years old. She is a sponsor's dream. Um, You know, she's photogenic. She's successful. Like this gold medal, it doesn't get more. And then, you know, how she obviously was tweeting during her competition, had won the competition. And then in the final run, knowing that she had won, still came down the half pipe and like did the best run of the day. All the tricks, her biggest tricks. Like she didn't half-ass this shit. Right. She threw down her biggest tricks on her final run of the day. Remember, she was hungry. <laughs> well, so she was just like working hard to get to her sandwich. Um, and so this article also profiles other athletes around the same age. There's um, like an Olympian from um, another Olympian from America who is also a snowboarder, Red Gerard. He's also 17. There's an Olympian from Norway, Johannes Hosflot Klebo, 21, became the youngest gold medalist in the history of cross-country skiing, um, which, like, people have been cross-country skiing forever. Snowboarding is a relatively new sport, but cross-country skiing is old. Um, <laughs> sure. And several others, um, that we have seen. And so, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, millennials and their approach to careers and what they want out of their workplaces. And this Sports Illustrated article seems to be suggesting that millennials will also reshape how athletes are managing their success. In many ways, because of social media, these young athletes are going to be much more savvy about success and how to manage success because they kind of have been living in the spotlight even before getting their gold medals. It's a really interesting tweak on how social media gets a bad rap for how it's corrupting a young generation. And it is an interesting spin on how it could actually help and, and nurture, in a way, these, these athletes who, unlike their predecessors, who many we've seen not able to deal with the sudden pressure and the spotlight um, in the aftermath of their victories? Well, I mean, first of all, this idea that like social media may be a tool that they'll be able to use. It's like, yeah, no shit. It's like the telephone. 
It's like saying, wow, you know, uh, future generations will be able to use electricity. Like these guys are, it is, we are old for even talking about this, which is kind of hilarious Mm -hmm. to me. And I'm not trying to undercut the greater point, which is that the, you know, we've kind of been talking about this through our whole episode today, which I really like, which is there is no real need for a private and public persona anymore. You can be your whole self without fear of reprisal, right? You are welcomed for being your whole self. But I have to pause and say that I have bad news uh, for you and Sports Illustrated. I think Chloe Kim is not a millennial. I think she's a post-millennial. Okay. Like Gen Z? Or what do you call it? I don't even, yeah. Like I think those people, I think millennials come of age in and around the millennium is the idea. Right. Yeah. You're right. Gen Z. Are they Gen Z? Yeah. Yeah, She's Gen Z. Like she's, I even wonder if Chloe Kim's parents are millennials. Mm -hmm. I did try to find that out, but could not quite pin it down. But it's an interesting conversation because I would say they are a part of her uh, social media fame, right? Yeah. Not just the stories of how they trained her and what they did for her and so forth, but they're they're in the conversation. She talks in this article about how her mom wants her to get her more followers. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it, which is amazing. Like, no, let's we can live in that for a minute. Yeah, like, that's a new, amazing world and place to be. But here's here's where I did never thought I'd go. For all of you who hate on the Kardashians and the ultimate momager, Kris Jenner, isn't that kind of the same? How do you mean? Like, like, like the mom who Chloe Kim's mom, who's like, get more followers, get more followers. Isn't that the Kris Jenner approach? No, no, no. Not get more followers. Her mom said, I want you to get me more followers. Like, Sure. <laughs> there, that too. Yeah. But uh, sure. I mean, I think that's, but I think you're hitting on something here. I think this is not people who are exceptional. Uh, they are exceptional at what they do, of course, at snowboarding or fashioning and shutting down Snapchat or whatever it is that they do. But- uh, I think this is the new way. The parents who are parenting young people who are coming of age, who are 17, 19, 20, realize that, yeah, there's no part of you, there's no wart that you have to hide. And God, I, it feels very positive and very exciting. What I also like about this from a sports perspective is that there are certain sports that we only care about every four years. So you've got your mains, right? Like soccer, basketball, whatnot. And then the snowboarding, yes, they're the X, the X Games sports, for sure, you have a, a very healthy following, but it's still considered a little bit fringe. Um, and right now, this new generation of champions, because of this resource that they have, they can actually keep their sports on the radar, not just every four years, but in on an ongoing basis in between those Olympic years. So will we be talking about Chloe Kim in a way that is just like, hey, 2022 and then 2026? 
Or can Chloe Kim be one of those generational athletes who doesn't just uh, become a headline every four years, but is consistently a headline throughout the time in between the games? Well, it's so interesting that you say that because I wonder if uh, each sport needs a star before that can happen, right? Obviously, uh, Chloe Kim is, as you say, she's got like that star quality. She is it. She's going to happen. And we haven't really had that person in snowboarding before. Certainly not a young woman. No, definitely not a young woman. I mean, obviously people are going to say Sean White, Sean White, and he is a name. Yeah, but it's not the same thing. No. It's not the same whole package where you can see her effortlessly moving from uh, snowboarding to, I just read that her box of cornflakes was the biggest seller uh, in like five minutes. Uh, Much like, you know, uh, the most recent generation of, Olympic gymnasts mm-hmm. has kept gymnastics and the women who they are and the multifaceted women who they are in the public eye longer than just every four years, right? And it's because of arguably that star power that then they were able to engineer it into so much positive attention when using their acclaim and fame for the indictment of of Larry Nasser and his sentencing a few months ago. Um, that's a big sweep, but it's because Ali Raisman and Simone Biles were already household names that there was that massive an effect. Yeah. I don't know if that story would have garnered as much outrage if there were only people we did not know. And they, ha- and they didn't have an immediate and repetitive reminder or way to remind people, hey, here we are, like the gymnasts of 20 years ago. And here's the thing. I'm obsessed with gymnastics in the summer and figure skating in the winter. And I will say that I probably know a lot more about figure skating. Like I can I can give you statistics and all that. Oh, it's so funny because I am the opposite. I, I, I have a pretty good gymnastics knowledge. I know about the the moves that are out, outlawed and whatnot. I am a casual figure skating yeah watcher, which makes me a bad Canadian. (laughs) Um, But I will say that, like, imagine if Dominique Moshianu had Twitter or Instagram back then. Ah, you know what's so funny? Dominique Moshianu and so many of the others, you know what they had? Books. As soon as they had their moment, they would drop a hardcover book. Here's the story of my life, period. Yeah, and I don't know that it was the same. It wasn't the same. It was highly edited and highly uh, engineered to show a type of person. Dominique Bocciano is a a bad example because her book was ultimately uh, a bit of a memoir that told a lot about her life and the tumultuousness of it. But, uh, you know, your Sean Johnsons and, and Nastia Lukens and so forth all had books that dropped. That was the closest you got to knowing who they were. There was such a premium on maintaining that perfection. Mm -hmm. And here we are back to Brendan Fraser again. Yeah. Complicated from simple. And the ease with which complicated can be dealt with if, if you never feel like there's anything you have to hide in the first place. Well, I mean, Chloe Kim is not hiding at all. In fact, she's, again, during the middle of her competition, 
uh, making you aware that she's hungry. But that's what I mean. Like when, why should she not? She's a human being. She got hungry. What do you got to know? Well, in the old days, it would be that the criticism would be, this means she's not focused, right? It would be, oh, if she's tweeting or if her mind is not on thinking about the run that she has to make and centering herself, she's on her phone, this must mean that she's distracted. Well, clearly not. That's the thing. This is putting your money where your mouth is. It, there's no, if she, you know, if she messed up a run, that'd be one thing. I also don't think she'd be that broken up about it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, she can back it up. So why shouldn't she? You know, it reminds me, of course, of John Montgomery. John Montgomery, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a Canadian athlete who, uh, is he a Vancouver native? He's not. He's an Alberta native. Sure. Uh, who, when the Olympics were going to be in Vancouver, decided to make himself an Olympian to get good enough at something that he could become an Olympian, uh, proceeded to do so in skeleton, which is a ridiculous sport that exists, mm-hmm. uh, won and then uh, made his his name for himself by walking through the Olympic Village, uh-huh. uh, drinking from a like a pitcher of beer, yeah. uh, while he strode. I will say, and sorry, I called him an Alberta native because he was based for so long in Calgary. He's actually from Manitoba, but to your point, he was like an auctioneer. Yeah, he literally <laughs> decided he was hey, an auctioneer. Yeah. He was like, you know, it would be cool being in the Olympics. I guess I better get good at something. <laughs> he did. He won. And then was like, hell yeah, I'm going to stride through Olympic Village drinking beer out of a pitcher because you can. If you've put yourself out there and been like, look how hard I worked. If you have shown your work, then why not show the rest of you too? Why not show who it is to get into that work? Well, on that note, like I've always pictured myself as a curler. (laughs) I think I could do it. I mean, this is getting very personal very fast. You know who I have to call. Uh, I have uh, a family member, my mother-in-law, who is a devoted and faithful curler uh, and who would be delighted to hear this. Anyway, maybe I could curl. Uh, Maybe Beijing 20. Wait, what is it? It's Beijing 2022. (laughs) Could I represent Canada in curling? Get sweeping. (laughs) Wait, no. Hurry hard. Well, on that note, that concludes our podcast for the week. Our supersized podcast, as you pointed out. Yeah, we're supersized because we will be in LA for the Oscars next week. We will not be podcasting. Um, Instead, we will be writing on the Monday, um, you'll get lots and lots of articles from us about the Oscars. Watch the Oscars. Watch Get Out if you haven't. And we will be back to talk with you the following week about everything that happened, every dress we argued about, every 3 a.m. delirious conversation that I know is coming. And keep sending us your pitches because many of you did pitch Brendan Fraser to us and wanted this discussed on Show Your Work, and we heard you. Thank you so much for listening. Leave your comments. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Keep showing your work. Bye.
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.